But when I got to Silicon Valley, probably the biggest lesson I learned is don't wait too long. Mm. If you have 50, 60, 70% of what you think you need, go for it. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. All right, welcome to episode 53. We're diving back into the topic of additive manufacturing in this one. Today, we're going to be talking to Jeff Mize, the CEO of Post Process Technologies, a company that is de-bottlenecking 3D printing, enabling the future of additive manufacturing, and getting it ready for prime time in manufacturing. Now, we've talked about this topic once on the show before, so it's exciting to get back into it. So I'm going to give you three things you can expect from this episode. First, we're going to get to hear Jeff's story. He's worked for some cool companies, and as a theme you're probably starting to sense is coming up here more on the show, we're going to hear what it was like going from the world of Silicon Valley more to the world of manufacturing. Second, we're going to talk about production applications in additive, as well as industries where it's a best fit. Finally, we're going to talk about why now is an inflection point for additive manufacturing and how post-process is part of that revolution. Now, Jeff is a natural storyteller, so we cover a lot of ground in this episode. Make sure to go over to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 53 to access the show notes from today's episode. As we start revisiting topics like 3D printing, I'd love to hear what you want to hear more of on the show. A real easy way to give that feedback is to leave us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It'll uh, take you straight there where it's super fast and super easy to leave a review. It doesn't have to be longer than just a couple sentences. But as I said, would love to hear more from you because that's ultimately what keeps fueling this show. And with that, I think it's time to get into our conversation with Jeff. We're going to ease into this today. We've got a little small talk to start off with about destinations and drinking. So, in true happy hour fashion, let's get rolling. You're based in Buffalo, New York, correct? The company's based in Buffalo. And so I'm officially based in Buffalo, but uh, during the pandemic, I've been at uh, my house out in Northern California. Oh, okay. Northern California. So I was just living in San Francisco. I just moved from there back to Milwaukee about six months ago. So really? where, yeah. where were you living in San Francisco? Uh, Coal Valley. Uh, okay. So just yeah. un- under Sutro Tower. What part of Northern California are you based in? Well, I'm between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe along 50. Okay. Okay. Yeah, just- right next to Folsom in a town called El Dorado Hills. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know that area. Yeah, there's yeah. some uh, good breweries up that way. I would uh, take plenty of road trips to Tahoe. I'm a big snowboarder. Okay. Yeah. In fact, uh, in fact, one of my goals is to uh, earn my stripes on the manufacturing happy. I should probably save this for the podcast, but get to the pubcast worldwide. <laughs> my other show. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. For anyone that listens, I do a beer show more about beer called pubcast worldwide. So have, feel free to tune into that if you're out there listening today, but, but Jeff, let's, uh, let's set the stage then. Let's say we're hanging out there in the El Dorado Hills or Folsom and where would we be drinking? Where would be a good spot in that area where we'd be grabbing a beer? You know, there's a couple different spots, uh, 36 handles 
is a, a golf cart ride away. Okay. But then also there's great, uh, great wine country and listening to Greg Paulson from Zometry a couple of months ago. I know he's a, it sounds like he's a sommelier, but uh, we have Amador County, which is okay. south of uh, where I live uh, here in Northern California, a great old vine Zinn. And it uh, folks down there, the winemakers tell me it's what Napa was 30 years ago. So I probably uh, get you in the car and we shoot down to Amador County, go to Young's Vineyard, uh, go to Toscano and probably enjoy some old vine gin together. All right. Amador County. Well, in that case, I'm going to introduce you, but I'm going to bring it back to that bottle of old Zin here in a second. So for those of you listening today, we are joined by Jeff Mize, the CEO of Post Process Technologies. There, he and his team are revolutionizing additive manufacturing by pioneering automated and intelligent solutions to remove the biggest bottleneck in the 3D printing process, which is called post-processing. Jeff, it's good to have you here on the show. And let's say we're, we're cracking into that bottle is in, we're hanging out at the winery and someone comes up to you and they're like, you know what? I've heard of post-process technologies before. I understand that post-processing is the third step in the process. Why is it the biggest bottleneck right now? How do you answer that if you're casually having a drink with someone? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Chris, there's three steps in the additive process, design, print, and post-print. And uh, one is when I first met our founder, Daniel Hutchinson, about five and a half years ago, I didn't realize that uh, 3D printing, or we refer to it as additive manufacturing, because that post-process, we're strictly focused on the industrial segment, uh, not in the consumer segment. And within industrial additive manufacturing, the vast majority of the investment has been made in that design step, as well as that print step. And in fact, there's well over 200, uh, quote unquote, industrial printer companies uh, out there today, uh, very little attention has been paid to the post-print step or what, uh, what we're focused on. Um, and a funny little story is that we call it post-printing within post-process technologies because, again, Daniel Hutchinson, our founder, had the foresight uh, seven, eight years ago to spend $3 on GoDaddy and uh, get the domain name postprocess.com. And so most everyone else in the industry calls it post-processing, but it gets a little confusing because that's the name of the company. So we're kind of you know, Kleenex tissue. Um, and so we call it post-printing. And uh, the vast majority, even today, of customers use manual labor or traditional manufacturing tools, whether they're wet blasters, uh, literally picks and brushes, um, or tumblers that were designed for subtractive manufacturing. Yeah. And so... Uh, again, about 10 years ago, Daniel was working at Northrop Grumman mm -hmm. after a distinguished career as a flight engineer in the Navy Yep, and uh, was at a Boeing facility and saw this really cool 3D printed part and said, you know, how do you clean that part once it's printed? Which when I first met Daniel, uh, again, back in September, October 2015, I thought, you know, I wouldn't even think of that. I would think just like a, a regular printer, you take the piece of paper, you're good to go. But there's quite a bit of work that needs to be done once the print is finished. And so Daniel saw at this Boeing facility, this team of technicians, again, mm -hmm. with these archaic tools and a ton of manual labor. And so he's constantly thinking, and he thought, man, there's gotta be a better way to do that third step in the process. So he embarked on a journey by first uh, leveraging his computer science background, writing code. And he thought that he could figure out a way to uh, digitize that analog process. Mm -hmm all of that tribal knowledge of the technicians. And so he wrote code. And then back then, this is eight, nine years ago, he couldn't find any hardware manufacturers 
that were interested and thought that there would be a market for automated yeah. printing. So leveraged his mechanical engineering and electrical engineering background and developed hardware and then approached some of the chemical companies to say, we need specific detergents, specific media to take into account the unique materials, the unique geometries that you can 3D print. No one was interested um, in that third step of the process from mm -hmm. a chemistry perspective. Uh, so he leveraged his high school chemistry degree, developed a relationship with one of our suppliers and came up with specific chemistry. And so then he integrated that, what we call the full stack solution of software, hardware, and chemistry. And we're really the pioneers. Uh, and, and again, with Daniel's vision and the team that we've built at Post Process, uh, we're creating the automated and intelligent post printing market. And so two big benefits there. One is that we remove the need for that artisan interpretation, all of that manual labor that's done by technicians, in some cases by engineers. In the medical market, I've talked to doctors that are cleaning medical models late into the night. And so we remove uh, that cumbersome uh, labor. And then secondly, as we see the market hit the inflection point and more and more companies, industrial manufacturers going into production with additive, we have mm -hmm. a second software platform called Connected that connects the digital thread from design to print to post print, which is absolutely essential for things like traceability, scalability, and the digital twin. So I'm sure that uh, if it was an engineer approaching us at one of those vineyards <laughs> in our county, they'd say, wow, that's pretty cool. If it was someone else working in the tasting room, they'd probably say, wow, that was a really long explanation. And I have no idea what the heck you just said. Well, I'm probably halfway through my glass of that old Zin at that <laughs> point, but it's a good old Zin. But no, you gave you gave us a lot to go off of. So just a quick recap. So for someone new learning about 3D printing today, you got design, you got print, and you've got post print, as you call it, but as the industry calls it, post process. And I got to give you guys kudos. That's fantastic branding. When you can grab basically, like you said, the Kleenex of your industry, that is some foresight on uh, on the, the end of your counterpart. Um, and you talked about medical, you talked about bringing together chemistry, software, hardware. I'm going to get back to all of these topics as we get into the conversation. We're going to take a little deeper dive in, into 3D printing because as, as you mentioned at the start, uh, we talked about it back in episode 37 with Greg Paulson. So that was like step one, but certainly a topic that warrants more discussion. But uh, Jeff, we want to get to know you a bit first. And one thing I found fascinating was before 3D printing, you were really involved in like the GPS navigation space. It looks like you were the executive vice president of global sales at Navtech from like basically, basically throughout the, the 2000s to 2010, 2012 or so. And what was it like working in that industry at that time? Because I feel like that's when it was really coming up. Because if I think about it, I was still using MapQuest in like, you know, 2007, 2008. Yeah. Yeah. So first we have something in common, Chris. We both started our careers in automation. I okay. was at Honeywell. I know that you were at Rockwell mm -hmm. and uh, spoke with uh, one of your former colleagues, Nick Sanakis. Yep. Good who's buddy. Now, yep. Yeah. He's, he's with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I believe he helped facilitate uh, this introduction. And so um, Honeywell was acquired by Allied Signal. Long story there that I won't go into the details on, but a former Honeywell colleague in 2000 approached me and said, hey, I'm really working, uh, I'm working for this really cool company, Navtech, digital mapping. Cliff Fox, ton of respect for Cliff, physicist from Iowa, um, as honest as the day is long. And he said, I really think that this is going to be a big market. At that point, uh, four young children, my wife didn't work outside of the home. But trust Cliff like a brother. In fact, Cliff's an investor in post-process. 
And I thought, yeah, I'll take a leap of faith. Been with a big corporation for the first 12, 13 years of my career. And the first step was it was frightening as hell uh, because we just didn't know if there was going to be a market back in 2001 for digital mapping. So spent a couple of years heads down and we actually would drive the roads. And one of the common themes that you'll see uh, in my career since 2001 is that I've been associated with taking analog processes and digitizing them. And I'll, I'll quickly get to post-process, but at NAFTEC, um, no one was really familiar with digital maps back in 2001. People were using uh, paper maps for the most part, but the founder of that company had found a way to, to digitize the road network and leverage the power of data science and computing to make it a lot easier for consumers to get to point A to point B. And so the first two years were quite harrowing. Weren't sure if we were going to actually have a business. Wasn't really sure if I was going to have a paycheck. And then right time, right place, things really started to take off in the 2003-2004 timeframe. And we were mainly focused on automotive and in-dash navigation. Pretty expensive, not broad market appeal, but it really gave us a lot of traction in the market. And so we actually took that company public uh, for a little over $2 billion, which was dramatically different than what we were looking at in 2001. And then uh, portable navigation devices became quite popular. Uh, one of our largest customers at Naptec was Garmin, also a customer of post-process. Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, maps got to the phone. And so, in fact, in 2008, uh, Nokia purchased uh, Navtech for a little over $8 billion when Nokia had Symbian as the dominant operating system in the cell uh, phone handset market. And their vision was to put a map on every phone, which, um, in fact, is now the case. And everyone's very familiar, uh, very familiar with digital mapping, not mainly due to Nokia, but uh, due to Apple uh, as well as Google uh, with their Android operating system. And so after a great almost 12 years at Navtech, uh, was approached by a digital ag startup in Silicon Valley, Third and Howard, right okay. across from Moscone, which I'm sure yep. you know right where that's at. Mm -hmm. uh, two ex-Googlers, uh, Dave Friedberg was our CEO. And uh, he and his data science team had figured out a way to ingest terabytes of data per day analyze that data and be able to provide insights and recommendations to farmers, uh, mainly corn and soybean farmers in the Midwest. And so basically what we did there is we digitized the analog process or in the simplest sense, digitized the farmer's almanac. And we're mm -hmm. able to supplement that intuition of the farmer, his father, his uh, grandfather and great grandfather, and be able to give them recommendations on how much fertilizer to apply to certain parts of their field to maximize their yield. And so again, uh, it was a pioneering effort. Uh, mm -hmm. Dave was quite a visionary, much like Daniel at post-process. We were the first company to do it. And Monsanto saw the revolutionary power of being able to leverage big data uh, to help supplement, again, what were analog processes for literally centuries. And so Monsanto acquired that company uh, for a little over a billion dollars. And then spent a little bit of time with Monsanto, about a year. And uh, as I'm sure you know, once you're a bigger fish in a smaller pond, uh, it's hard to be a, a small fish in, a, in the ocean again. Sure. So I had a fantastic idea to become a professional investor. Okay. So that was in 2015. And after about a month, it was great. First month, uh, at this point, our kids were all out of the house in college or out of college. And so my wife and I were having a lot of fun. The second month, I was driving my wife crazy since I had traveled. Uh, the entire my entire career in the third month month she said you you need it you need to go do something full-time um, yeah so i was introduced through a, a former NAFTEC colleague to daniel 
Uh, this former colleague, Larry Kaplan, uh, another uh, a dear friend who's also on our advisory board at uh, Post Process, was in the 3D printing market at the time and met Daniel. And Daniel had this vision of basically doing what we had done at Navtech with mapping, doing what we had done with farming at Climate. He was going to mm -hmm. do it for manufacturing. And so at first, like I mentioned earlier, I thought, why would you need to do anything? And then Daniel explained to me the three steps in the process, design, print, post print, and the need to remove supports on just about probably 98 to 100% of the parts that are 3D printed. Yeah. And then secondly, there was a growing demand for surface finish. Mm -hmm. And he explained to me his vision of the full stack, starting with software and then combining the hardware and the chemistry. And so I spent about three months doing industry research. I'm sure much like you, when I was at Honeywell, I spent quite a bit of time in manufacturing on the factory floor. Mm -hmm. And talked to some of my old colleagues from my uh, factory automation days. And no one on the factory floor really had embraced 3D printing back in 2015, but there was a lot of activity going on with additive manufacturing and prototyping. Yeah. And I thought, man, you know, might, might be a good time to jump into this market. We could be close to the inflection point where volumes are going to grow, both in rapid prototyping as well as in uh, production applications. And being the, Daniel being the pioneer and offering the first automated and intelligent solution, I thought we might be able to solve the customer's pain points in that third step of the process, leveraging uh, data analytics software mm -hmm. and uh, grow a substantial company and build another uh, hopefully fun, fast and flexible culture uh, with a great group of uh, team members. Um, and this time out of Buffalo. So it was quite yeah. a move. Quite right. a move leaving Silicon Valley uh, and going to Buffalo. And so, yeah, I joined Daniel full-time uh, in January of 2016. Seems like yesterday, but it's coming up on five and a half years. And I must say that uh, although I grew up in Chicago and was exposed to snow as a kid, I've been out in Northern California for about 20 years. Yeah. So surviving six Buffalo winters is uh, a whole chapter in the book we're going to write uh, post post process. I was going to say this podcast will provide a, it, it would be like a good Wikipedia page right there of the, the history of uh, your experience for, uh, go, taking analog processes and digitizing them. That's one of the things that jumped out at me. And, and I guess I have a career question. At what point, if at, if at any point, did you realize that was kind of your specialty or like an area where you could excel? Yeah, yeah it wasn't planned. Sure. And so, so I, I left Honeywell. Uh, I went to an electronic security equipment company in Folsom mm -hmm. outside of Sacramento. And we were doing a little bit uh, with uh, data analytics. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. Um, and if one of our newest board members, Usama Fayyad, who's one of the world experts in big data, experiential AI. In fact, a, a quick fun fact uh, uh, with Dr. Fayyad, he was the first chief data officer back at Yahoo in uh, 2004. And he told us a funny story earlier this week that uh, Jeff Yang liked to come up with crazy titles. And so that was a crazy title that came up with that no one had had before. And in fact, now, if you look up chief uh, data officer, there's thousands of them around the world. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my career path, I, I, uh, I was exposed to it first back in the late nineties and Honeywell actually came and acquired that company. I left Honeywell about 18 months later, they came and acquired the company joke that I was so valuable to Honeywell. They had to come and acquire the company that had no reason uh, to do with why they acquired the electronic security equipment company. But then when I jumped into Navtech, uh, we were definitely a data science company. Yeah. And thinking about uh, how Dr. Fayed explains things, taking the output and feeding it back into the input and having a closed loop system and doing that, uh, uh, collecting the data and then doing the analysis on that data 
which then leads to insights and potentially recommendations is super powerful. And so, you know, back in 2001, 2002, I didn't realize how deep I was getting into uh, data analytics. Mm-hmm. It became clear that our ability at Navtech to digitize the road network and make it super simple for the consumer to plug in an address and to get from point A to point B without thinking about it was great. And then uh, we had some of the best data scientists in Silicon Valley uh, working at Climate and seeing what they were able to do from a platform perspective and ingesting just terabytes of data. And then watching what was happening in other markets. Google's the classic example, right? Mm-hmm. So many people use Google that they have the most data, that they do the best analysis, they give you the best results uh, for your search. And so as um, yeah, after Climate, I said, wow, this is just so powerful. And this can be applied to just about any market. And so mm-hmm. when, again, I met, uh, when I met Daniel and started digging into additive manufacturing, I thought this market is absolutely ripe to leverage data science. And that was already happening in the print step as well as the design step. But again, Daniel had this unique ability to see the future that the post print step had been ignored. And so mm-hmm. applying data science, as well as that connectivity through our connected platform, I said, you know, not sure if this is going to take five years or 15 years for manufacturing to embrace this uh, data science. But I think we're at a point now where uh, especially the pandemic was an accelerant in that it exposed weaknesses in global supply chains. And so I believe that we're going to start seeing substantial production applications in additive in the next 12 to 24 months. And it's absolutely imperative that you have that third step of the additive process connected digitally. So you have that end to end digital thread. So long way of getting to, to an answer to your question that <laughs> it just came about that seeing how powerful data can be and how it really doesn't matter what market you're in. It can be applied uh, pretty much independently of whatever market. It gives you insights that you just can't get uh, trying to do things the old way. Well, we've been talking. I've got one more question about about your background before we dive into 3D printing specifically. But we've been talking a lot about data science, digitization, a lot about the tech. Now, you clearly have a Silicon Valley background that you're bringing to the manufacturing space, which is something we're seeing more and more. Is that your number one takeaway from Silicon Valley that's helped you, you know, as you get more into like the manufacturing world or are there other takeaways, maybe more on the softer human side of things? Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. I would say probably the biggest lesson that I learned uh, at Navtech, uh, which was a startup. It had been around quite a long time. It had been unprofitable for 16, 17 years. Phillips, uh, the Dutch conglomerate had invested $750 million into the company back in the days when they were in the in-dash navigation market. But when I got to Silicon Valley, probably the biggest lesson I learned is don't wait too long. Mm. If you have 50, 60, 70% of what you think you need, go for it. And you know, the lean startup and Eric Reese and, and the minimum viable product, uh, as you know, uh, living out in San Francisco, uh, people are willing to take risks. And you, you often hear fail fast, mm-hmm. but... I was in Detroit last week, and it's interesting because there are some early adopters in some of the major automotive OEMs, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, there's a very cautious culture, and not just Detroit, but in manufacturing overall. Sure. And so, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley and seeing how quickly things move, seeing the risks people take, seeing the ability to, to correct more quickly, and again, it's a bit easier in software to fail fast than it is in a manufacturing environment. But that was one of the principles that I said 
instead of procrastinating and waiting until I have 90, 95% of the supposed information I need, let's, let's run with what we think is best and make uh, mid-course corrections if necessary. And I think that uh, there's pockets of manufacturing that have embraced uh, that mentality and other pockets that are really thinking uh, quite old school. And I believe that additive manufacturing will be one of the driving forces that will help lead to industry 4.0. Yeah. Which I'm sure uh, many, if not all of your listeners on the manufacturing happy hour. Oh yeah. With. And not just additive manufacturing. You know, there's, uh, if you look at the Boston consulting group, model eight, they talk about nine different technologies from autonomous robots to augmented reality, to big data and analytics and additive manufacturing is one of those nine. But I think with some of these new technologies, a lot of it driven, not just out of Silicon Valley, but a lot of it having its roots in Silicon Valley, big data being one of them, as well as IOT, that will help manufacturer, manufacturers around the globe uh, to be able to move more quickly and some of the inherent characteristics of how additive manufacturing works versus subtractive manufacturing will allow that as well. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. Are you searching for an e-commerce platform tailored to your industrial operation? Well, look no further than our sponsor for today's episode, Gen Alpha. Gen Alpha equips manufacturers, distributors, and dealers with the products and services they need to accelerate profits online. Now, I've been lucky enough to really get to know the folks over at Gen Alpha for the past few months, and what I love about them is that their entire leadership team comes from our industry. Not only do they know e-commerce, but they understand the challenges that manufacturing companies face when ordering parts online. If implementing an e-commerce platform is new territory for you or you feel like you could be doing it better, Gen Alpha offers an e-commerce readiness assessment to help OEMs identify their areas of strength and weakness in order to prioritize the activities required for a successful e-commerce launch. To learn more about Gen Alpha, make sure to head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Gen Alpha to listen to our interview with their president and COO, Christina Harrington. There, you can also find a direct link to their e-commerce readiness assessment, or you can check them out on the web at genalpha.com. In summary, if you're an equipment manufacturer, distributor, and your customers struggle to identify the right parts for the job, Gen Alpha can help. And now, back to today's episode. Well, I've got, you brought up a great point and that's don't wait too long. You know, if you're 50, 60% of the way there, go for it, which I think is interesting that we're having a conversation around 3D printing today, because in the, the last time we talked about 3D printing, one of the applications I was told where it's great for is rapid prototyping or prototyping, getting prototypes done a lot quicker. So, you know, while manufacturing doesn't necessarily have the same luxury as the software world to try and break things quickly and things like that, I see 3D printing as one of those things that helps in that regard. But, you know, some other applications I've been hearing about that I think, you know, you referenced our, our common friend Nick had, uh, had brought up um, are that there are a lot of applications in like the medical space. Um, like you can do, you basically print out human body parts to, you know, prepare for surgery and th things like that. And before I put too many words in your mouth, I'm curious, what are some of the ripe applications beyond prototyping for uh, additive manufacturing? Yeah. Let me, let me just touch on rapid prototyping for a minute. And I was like, as I mentioned in Detroit last week for a few days, and it's incredible 
what additive has been able to do in terms of prototyping and without we're under NDA with all of our customers. Most of what we're working on is pretty state of the art, which is cool stuff. Sure. Think about in the old days, the wood shop would uh, model a rear view mirror mm -hmm. and it could take that artist days to get the right dimensions on that rear view mirror. And then they'd go to wind tunnel testing. Today you can 3d print a hundred different varieties with different angles, different textures, different materials of that rear view mirror and, and get that done in a matter of weeks. If you tried to do that with traditional techniques in the wood shop, it would take you years. So that's mm -hmm. one area where we see the rapid prototyping volumes significantly increasing. In fact, and, and uh, I'm sure as, as all of your listeners know, additive is touching every imaginable market, uh, automotive, aerospace, medical, dental, as well as consumer. I'm going to come back to medical in a second, but consumer, uh, there's a consumer customer that's literally printing hundreds of thousands of prototypes per year. And so while the vast majority of industrial 3D printers are used for RP or rapid prototyping, we're seeing those volumes uh, scale uh, quite quickly because of the flexibility of the technology. Uh, and when you start doing, you know, if you're doing five additive parts a week, you could brute force it and use manual labor for that third step of the process uh, post-printing that we're uh, laser focused on at post-process. Uh, but when you start getting into hundreds per week, or in some cases, you know, a thousand, two thousand per week, you just can't get the throughput. You can't get the consistency that you need. Um, going over to medical, where there are a number of rapid prototyping applications, but also some production applications, uh, we see that that's a perfect fit for additive manufacturing because of the mass customization capabilities. So everyone's body is slightly different. And you know, if you're doing an implant, and I was talking to the chief technology officer of a major medical uh, implant provider, and he said in the old days, sized me up and said, you know, if you were getting a hip, hip implant, it'd be between a five and a six. Today, we can print a 5.375 that's gonna fit in there just right and make it very easy for the surgeon. So medical is a huge market and then dental and Invisalign, I believe is probably the highest volume application of dental aligners. And again, revolutionized the way uh, that people get their teeth straightened. So uh, a lot of prototyping going on in the medical space, as well as some production applications. And just to, to net it out from uh, an application perspective, a market perspective, again, we're working in every imaginable manufacturing market. You name it, there's some 3D printers there. Again, mostly in rapid prototyping, but we mm -hmm. see more and more of these customers now thinking about how do I take this technology and use it for production applications? It's not gonna replace injection molding, that's not the intent, but there's a number of benefits and a number of applications. And so the three leading markets right now are uh, automotive, uh, medical, and aerospace. One that surprised me is how consumer goods companies have embraced additive as well. Again, quite a bit of prototyping going on, but some production applications uh, that are pretty exciting. And one of the driving forces of the consumer goods companies are time to market. Okay. Okay. I'm interested to hear one of the coolest consumer goods applications you've seen so far. I can only imagine the things they're doing over there. <laughs> it's oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. It's, uh, you know, medical is fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I was with a customer uh, outside of Detroit and uh, they were showing me how they have developed these 3D printed guides for surgery. 
and how the surgeons did it in the past without these guides. And these guides are 3D printed to each individual patient takes a lot of the guesswork out, right? And so the mm -hmm. surgeon becomes less of an artist and more of a scientist uh, yeah. by using these guides that, you know, and, and those don't stay in the body like a hip implant or a knee implant. Uh, but these guys, it was just fascinating with what they're doing from a medical perspective. Yeah. And on the consumer good side, the proliferation of materials is incredible. There's well over a thousand materials that you can now 3D print, uh, both on the polymer side as well as the metal side. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it's every day, but every week, uh, some type of new composite comes out, uh, whether it's a metal composite, uh, as well as different uh, uh, polymers, different resins. And so we see the uh, large material companies like a Henkel. Uh, they acquired a company in, uh, in Northern California, uh, in Concord. Uh, and a gentleman by the name of Ken Kisner had started a company called Molecule. Henkel acquired that. And they're just very uh, prolific in terms of the number of resins that are coming out. And so because of the proliferation of materials, the number of 3D printers out there, you can just about print anything. Yeah. And, and when you think about the different applications, you know, it's just crazy. Medical is more astounding to me with what they're doing and, and how it's helping. Uh, from a, from a health perspective, but yeah, consumer goods, a lot of really cool applications. Again, I, I can't get into details of okay. what, what the applications <laughs> are because most of them are public, but uh, it's really intriguing to see the big bet that consumer companies are making as well. And one other key point, one of the drivers is sustainability and safety. Mm -hmm. And those are two key focus areas for us at post-process. Uh, one, it's inherently more sustainable because you're adding material that you need Versus, again, in the simplest sense, starting with the chunk of metal and subtracting away what you need mm -hmm. in traditional manufacturing. And then also from a safety perspective, uh, the processes that we're developing uh, at Post-Process Technologies, uh, less, less toxic, more sustainable, higher longevity chemicals. Uh, I was at a, a consumer goods company, not far from where you're located right now, and was, we were giving a presentation uh, to one of the senior leaders and he invited his staff and he was saying, well, we use IPA today, isopropyl alcohol to clean the resin off. And he said, you know, it's cheap and it, it does a fairly good job. And one of his technicians who had been with the company for 30 plus years said, I lost my sense of smell about 15 years ago. And I lost my sense of taste about 10 years ago from inhaling IPA. And, and there's other risks with IPA in terms of a low flashpoint. So we're really focused on how can we make our solutions as safe as possible and then also as sustainable as possible. And again, there's some inherent benefits of additive manufacturing. There's also some waste. And so as an industry, we're focused uh, with uh, several of the printer companies. Uh, we announced the recent partnership with Carbon to try to ensure we're doing everything possible to make the end-to-end -end solution as sustainable as possible. Awesome answer. Awesome examples. You know, one, one thing that jumped out early in that was you're talking about the problem you're solving. Surgeons are able to be, I think you, the words you used were less of an artist, more of a scientist at this point. That jumped out when you talk about consumer goods. I know we can't go into the applications, but just thinking of that example where you think about the the safety or the just improvement in well-being, we're able to get rid of IPA, isopropyl alcohol, I should make sure since this is uh, kind of as a happy hour theme, we're not talking about IPAs, the beer, we're talking about the chemical, but being able to remove those steps from the process is huge with the problems you solve. 
you know, with the time we have left, one of the big things that jumped out earlier in our conversation, one of the things that, you know, we wanted to talk about today was you made a comment. I think you said 18 months or so. I don't know if I have the time right, but you're seeing a big inflection point where we're going to see additive really take off. And I think that's something that's on the mind of the manufacturing leaders that listen to the show, just figuring out where does additive fit into my process. So I'd love to kind of hear why you think we're at kind of such a a critical point right now where it's going to be, um, not to say the next big thing, but more widely used than maybe we've seen it before. Sure. So we're seeing some developments, uh, three different fronts I'll comment on. One is the print speeds from the printers that are coming out. Uh, the, the carbon has extremely fast print speeds. Uh, a startup out of Minnesota called Evolve has a technology that was built on 2D printing, and they can produce a million parts per year on each one of their printers. So we're seeing the print speeds increase. Secondly, we're seeing the material selection and the material robustness uh, be fit for production applications, whether it's automotive, aerospace, and meeting those tough standards that they have for material properties in those key markets, medical as well, and biocompatibility. And then third, and obviously an area that that, uh, I spend a lot of time along with my team at Post Process, is in automating that third step of the process, uh, which didn't exist a few years back. And so the combination of those three factors, plus some external things, such as weaknesses that were identified in the global supply chain, which gave visibility to the C-suite at many manufacturers. They said, again, this isn't gonna replace injection molding, but there are definitely applications that with the uniqueness of the geometries we can print, the wide variety of materials, and one thing that we're working on is connecting that digital thread from end to end. Um, Combined with, we're working on several production applications today, and they look very promising overall. And so we, we believe that predominantly in the four core markets of aerospace, automotive, medical, and consumer goods. And again, some are in high volume production today. And for me, high volume production is anything over a million parts uh, mm-hmm. per year uh, with additive. And they're looking to streamline the process and get to a point where they have lights out manufacturing as part of the vision of a you know, fully connected digital thread, fully integrated end-to-end process uh, as part of Industry 4.0. Now, I have, I have one question, or maybe it's more looking for a story around this to kind of tie it all together, because we talk about how post-process um, and having uh, this de-bottlenecking, this last part of the process, is one of the reasons that this is such a, a prime time for 3D printing. So can you describe where uh, exactly how this de-bottlenecks the process, maybe through an example so people have a vision in their head. Sure. And so at Post Process, we leverage our full stack solutions that are focused on solving two problems. One is support removal. Mm-hmm. And, and the second major category is surface finish. And within support removal, uh, we do traditional support removal from parts that come off of uh, FDM or polyjet printers, fused deposition modeling or, or uh, polyjet Uh, resin removal, uh, which SLA is the predominant technology there, but there's been some recent technologies, again, clip uh, from carbon and some other uh, inventions that have been introduced recently. And then powder uh, removal, the gross depowdering with technology such as SLS and then MJF from companies like HP. And so 
Today, and I'll use FDM as the example. So you print an FDM part and the vast majority of customers will soak that part in sodium hydroxide. Not the nicest thing to be inhaling all day. And the issues with that is one, it's not uh, software controlled. So you put the part in what we call a, a dunk tank or a dumb tank and it sits there and you wait, whether it's four hours, eight hours, depending on how saturated the solution is, it could be up to 12 or 18 hours. You take the part out and then it takes forever to dry. And I was with uh, a, a relatively new engineer at an automotive OEM. And she was telling me she was so embarrassed. One of her first presentations to her management, she set the FDM part, the prototype on the desk, and some of the liquid was oozing out, some of the uh, sodium hydroxide liquid. And so we've come up with a technology that we call VVD, volumetric velocity dispersion. Don't have time today, Chris, to go into the background <laughs> on how we name our- uh, uh Another beverage for another time to go over that one. <laughs> Part of the, the pubcast, uh, the pubcast worldwide that we'll be doing out of Amador County, hopefully this summer. Um, but the VVD technology is a spray technology. It's controlled through our automated software. There's specific chemistry that's been developed for the different types of supports that come with different FDM materials. And the really cool thing is that the technician or engineer can walk away, let our solution uh, run through its cycle. It could be anywhere from an hour to two hours, and then they can come back and the part will be finished. And Toro is a great example. Uh, the gentleman who leads additive at Toro, Rob McArdle, very uh, visionary. And so he uh, embraced what we call our base solution to pair with uh, his FDM print technology. And he told us, this was a couple of years ago, that he was able to reduce the amount of time it took him to get the prototypes done, that they were able to get to a trade show more quickly with a newer product. And secondly, he was able to reduce his technician time. I believe it was 89%. And the reason is that using the old technology of the dunk tank, you have to go back, you have to check it, and then it takes a long time to dry. Whereas with our solution, once the recipe is defined for a part or a set of parts, you put it into the chamber, you hit go, you walk away, and we can alert you via uh, remotely on your phone, the cycle is done, or you know that the cycle is going to be 90 minutes, you come back in 90 minutes. And so instead of having to spend so much time going and checking on the parts, uh, we could significantly reduce the amount of what we call attended technician time. That's one example. And another example is oftentimes, it's a one to one ratio when you're doing uh, support removal, say on uh, on PolyJet, the operator is actually using a wet blaster, mm -hmm. and they're they're uh, blasting the supports away, so they're actually holding the part the whole time. Whereas in our process, you put the parts into our chamber, you hit go on the software, you walk away, and you reduce the amount of time uh, up to ninety eight percent in some cases. Yeah, what what I find interesting, th this is probably my biggest question is if this has been such a bottleneck, if this has been such a challenge, why was it ignored in the 3D printing world for so long? Yeah. It, it, so it's funny that you bring that up because post printing or post processing is often called the dirty little secret. A couple of funny stories about that, especially when we were raising money. I'll save that for, uh, for our next get together. But earlier on in the market, you could brute force it. And you could use manual labor and consistency 
and throughput weren't that important. Mm-hmm. Many people weren't measuring their ROI uh, in terms of how much time they were actually spending on post printing. In fact, on average, uh, the post print spend is about 25 to 30 percent of the overall cost. In fact, uh, our head of marketing, uh, Diana Robbins and her team do an annual trend survey on post printing that you can find on our website, postprocess.com. has a lot of interesting statistics, but five, six, eight years ago, you, the volumes weren't high enough and you didn't have these parts seeing the light of day in many cases. So manual labor was fine. Now we're at a point where it's been swept under the rug for so long that oftentimes the printer is sold without having a discussion about what's required after printing and whether it's support removal surface finish or some other uh, post printing process um, that often comes in after the fact. And many folks at the manufacturing company won't want to go back and ask for additional CapEx and whether it's a post process solution or some other type of capital expenditure. And so they'll continue to use a greater and greater uh, portion of their OPEX budget to keep pushing forward with manual labor. And again, that's okay in some cases, but if you really need consistency, and today there's more and more labor shortages, especially as we come out of the pandemic, I believe there's a lot of pent up demand that we're hearing from a lot of our customers that's going to be unleashed in the second half of the year. I believe hiring is going to become one of the biggest challenges for all of us in the manufacturing sector. Especially finding folks that want to do this kind of uh, manual labor is going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. And so, replacing the, the manual labor. And we joke that our machines don't get tired. You can run them 24 seven. They never mm-hmm. need a break and they don't take vacation. Uh, it's going to become a more of a pressing problem. And then when you talk about production, it's impossible to use the current techniques and use those in a production setting because you just can't get the scale and you can't get the consistency overall. So we're seeing much more awareness, mm-hmm. uh, much more admission that something needs to be done And uh, through the automation, the intelligence, and then the connectivity, uh, we believe that we're going to see more and more applications have truly an end-to-end connected digital thread, in some cases, prototyping, and then in any production case, you're going to need to have that. Well, this makes a lot of sense because we talk robotics on the show quite a bit as well. Very similar story for that. They're taking on the dull, dirty, dangerous jobs. You know, I'd certainly say doing the post-processing manually would qualify under the dull category in uh, in a lot of ways. So looking looking for ways to replace that. And, and really what you said earlier, you know, we talk about digital transformation here a lot too. Bringing the chemistry, the software, and the hardware together. It's really cool the things you're doing over at post-process technologies. You know, as we get to the end, I've got to ask, what's something you wish I would have asked you that I haven't yet? We've covered a lot of ground. We've also talked about beer, but what's uh, what's something else that might still be on your mind, whether it's 3D printing related or something else? That's a good question. You've hit on the key points of why hasn't this been a more visible problem? What's holding it? Uh, what's holding additive back from production? So nothing immediately comes to mind. Um, I do have a couple though for the pubcast. All right. All right. Let's do it. Let's do a beer oriented question then. What's a beer, uh, a beverage oriented question you wish I would have asked you? <laughs> <laughs> what's my favorite beer? What is your favorite beer? And you can be as specific or as general as you want. Hogarden. Hogarden. That was one of my first, uh, it's a, it's a wit beer, right? I know it's Belgian, but it's like a wit beer, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason is that when I was working for Naftec, I lived in Germany from 2003 to 2007. Oh, okay. 
And I had to go present at the EU once a quarter. And so I'd go to Belgium and I would fly Lufthansa typically. And there was a bar right outside. And there was this barmaid that had been there, I think at least 40 years. Yeah. And she would let me sample all the different beers. And I kept going back to Hogarth. So I'd see her once a quarter, really fell in love with Belgian whites. But I think I might be off on a bit of a tangent, even though happy hour is in the name of this podcast, that's probably uh, better saved for our trip down to Amador County with uh, you, me, and Nick. Sounds good. Yeah, we do. We should get Nick. We should do a little, little beer tasting, a little wine tasting. That would be fun. And and it's all fair game here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. I, I have to say my favorite beers lately. I know you've escaped the winter where you're at in California right now, but we're still getting out of extended winter here in the Midwest. But we had great spring weather the other day. I, I think it was a Belgian wit, actually, that I was having where it just fit the environment of being in a beer garden perfectly. So, um, well, Hey Jeff, I appreciate all the conversation from 3d printing to our little, uh, beverage tangent here in the end. It's been excellent having you on here for everyone listening. You can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com. We'll be linking up to post-process technologies over there. And Jeff, I just have to say, thanks for jumping on the show today. Thanks very much, Chris. Really appreciate you having me and very much enjoy, uh, the manufacturing happy hour podcast. Love it. We'll have to grab a drink soon. Cheers. Cheers. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Great getting back into 3D printing on the show. Got to give a shout out to my buddy Nick Zanakis for helping make this interview happen. We love taking your suggestions. We get a lot of them. We can't always get to them, but we love it when we're able to dive into shows like this covered a lot of ground so if you want to learn more head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 53 there you can not only get to more information on post process but you can also access links to the drinking destinations jeff was hyping up at the start of the conversation 36 handles young's vineyard villa toscano winery all of these spots in northern california which i'd love to get back to at some point Again, visit all that over at the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 53. Before we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for today's episode, Gen Alpha. They are the premier e-commerce solution for manufacturers. If your customers need to order the right part quickly, need to access the right part from your equipment on drawings, they have a solution for that. They make it really easy for your customers to do business with you. And quite frankly, in order to grow and expand in today's market, you need a robust e-commerce platform. So look no further than Gen Alpha. And if you want to learn more about them, we interviewed their COO, Christina Harrington. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Gen Alpha to hear their whole story. And with that, that's it for this week. We will be back. We got more great interviews in the tank for you. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you back here on Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.